I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. When you're just starting to get to know your plants and herbs, it can at first feel pretty bewildering. How are you supposed to get to know all these different species, where they grow, what they're good for? Personally, I started small, with the flowers that grow in town, maybe in the garden or along the side of the road. You know, garlic, lavender. And sometimes as I got to know a specific plant, I'd try a little, learn some of its properties. And gradually I started to level up learning wilder plants like mountain flowers, which are pretty widespread, giant lichen, often found in marshes, and nern root, easiest to harvest at night since it glows and emits that loud ringing sound. We didn't used to be able to make plants glow, but we were very insistent that, you know, for, for specific plants, they had to glow. That was a thing we needed. This is Megan Sawyer. She's an environment artist at Bethesda Game Studios and the creator of the Nern Root. And in case it's not yet clear, I'm talking about plants in a video game. Megan's particular specialty is ingredient plants. She designed the herbs that I spent so many hours learning about and collecting in the world of Skyrim. We used to joke that we spend an inordinate amount of time making the most perfect tree so that you will run by it in five seconds and not notice it. <laughs> and if you don't notice it, then our job is done. I don't currently own a video game console, but I can't tell you how many times I've wished that I could escape into Skyrim right now. I really wouldn't call myself a gamer, although I do think that these days that's kind of an arbitrary definition. Like, I think of myself as spending most of my childhood outside, but when I list the number of games I've played, I realize it is not short. Bugdom, The Sims, Mario, Snake, American Girl Doll Theater, French for the Real World, Crash Bandicoot Warped, Metal Gear Solid. But for me, all of those games are nothing to Skyrim. Uh, Skyrim is a open world video game, which means you can explore anywhere. I've never spent so many hours in a virtual world. And it is a fantasy themed game. The main premise of the game 
Dragons have returned to the world where you are the hero of the world. So you are the one who can defeat the dragons, thus obtain the words of power, and fulfill the legends of yore. And you gotta save it. <laughs> Honestly, I was not interested in the battles and the dragon fights. I actually never even did some of the main quests. I was mostly interested in just being in the world itself. Whenever I'm creating an ingredient plant or, or anything to really go in a space, I think about like, what story is that space telling? What's the player going to be doing when they're in that space? How do I want them to feel? Skyrim is vast, with cities, villages, remote farmhouses, abandoned ships, islands, and wilderness, high waterfalls cascading into deep pools, packs of wolves roaming the edges of misty alpine forests, echoes in the canyons, mountain lakes, in a valley, a mossy stream glittering, birches with white trunks and golden leaves. But spend enough time in a fantasy, and it might change how you relate to the real world. Ten years ago, before I'd ever played Skyrim, I went on a hike at sunrise in the Hudson Valley. I remember standing on a ridge as the sky brightened, watching the fog rise off the river in thick curling ribbons. And I thought, wow, that looks like a dragon. And now there are times when I go on a hike and maybe I'm on a trail I've never been down before and I notice how the light's playing on the moss. When I think, wow, this looks exactly like Skyrim. But of course, Skyrim is not a landscape shaped by geologic forces and wind and rain. It's a landscape and a world invented by people, people with their own relationships and lives and memories. And the act of creating a virtual world can be transformative too. At peak moments, I would go and take a walk and I'd be like looking at light, sunlight on pavement. And I, I would find myself like trying to figure out what RGB color value it would be and I would catch myself and I would feel my heart rate increase stressfully and I was and I is it wasn't quite an epiphany but it was this realization of like oh my gosh this is crazy <laughs> for lack of a better word it's flipping crazy Hey everybody, this is Outside In, where curiosity and the natural world collide. I'm Nate Hedgie. This week, a lot of people are out there diving into newly unwrapped video games, so we decided to dive back into one of our favorite episodes about one of the most celebrated video game landscapes ever created. Since we first released this episode at the beginning of the pandemic, Skyrim has turned 12 years old. More video games have used landscapes inspired in part by Skyrim. And there's a trailer for a sequel, but that game isn't due out for at least a couple of years. I'll leave it to producer Justine Paradise to tell you why Skyrim was so revolutionary and what it took for the team to make a video landscape seem so real. So, happy holidays, safe driving, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. It is not a stretch in any way to say that Skyrim is like one of the most important video games of all time, you know, in my opinion. And I think in very 
many people's opinion. This is Ana Diaz. She's a video games journalist. Just to get some perspective here on why I'm talking about Skyrim nine years after its release in 2011. It's like part of the video games canon, essentially. Within its first week, Skyrim was reported to gross $450 million. And while I'm told game sales numbers are notoriously difficult to determine, I've seen Skyrim sales placed at 20 and 30 million copies. It's one of the top selling video games in history. The game was quite literally large for its time. Like the actual digital space uh, you occupied in it was big. Again, Skyrim is vast. Exploring every forest and cave and town and lake would take days, weeks, even months. Just completing the main storyline takes on average 30 hours. Though, of course, you can do it a lot faster. In addition to its size, the game brims with beautiful flora and fauna. And there was a lot to look at within that large world. So Skyrim had this uh, Scandinavian, Nordic, um, Northern European setting. So it lent itself well to tall, towering pine trees and that kind of rugged, jagged rock and snow-capped peaks. This is Noah Berry. He was the lead environment artist for Skyrim. And just personally speaking, from an aesthetic sense, that's just something I've always loved. Just, I've, I'm a fan of forests. <laughs> Within the world of video games, Skyrim's in a category called an open world. That more kind of relaxed gameplay, explorative, uh, contemplative, almost meditative. Like, I think in the best moments, personally speaking, you could go into it and not have any conscious gameplay uh, notion in mind, and you could just sort of sit and be in the world and experience it aesthetically through your screen and through your speakers. Compare that to a game like Mario, basically a linear track with obstacles and levels that are essentially pass-fail. In a linear game, the environment's a backdrop. Maybe you see mountains off in the distance, but you can't go there. In Skyrim, you can go to the mountain. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about... Um specifically um, the monastery. Uh-huh. It's at like a, the very, very top of a mountain peak that somehow the game prevents you from just stumbling across. The throat of the world. Yeah, yeah the throat of the world. This is the most sacred mountain in Skyrim. And um, it takes forever to get there, and it's kind of this really steep slope. It's really, really snowy. Um, and it kind of like points to... You know, these are people who are sort of cloistered. They're deeply yeah. academic. They're, I mean, they have their, like, in the story, they have their problems. Um, and so that, that seems to me like a place where landscape and story really overlap. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, honestly, I don't think there was any location in the game that we didn't try to do that with. The world itself was almost the main character of the game, in a way. To say that it's just the background, I think, is is not quite enough. All the memories that you take away from playing a game, um, I think the world is sort of the, the larger encompassing vehicle that helps usher all that into you. We hope. <laughs> I think a lot of really successful stories do this. The imagined landscape and the world that contains these stories is organized intelligently. It provides a place for all of that magic and emotion and fantasy to root. I think about Ursula K. Le Guin and her speculative fiction and sci-fi. Her imagined planets and people are shaped by forces both geologic and social. 
Like in her novel The Dispossessed, she imagined an anarchist society on a barren moon. Every part of the world was influenced by the harshness of the environment, from concepts about privacy, to ideas of property, to language. As one reviewer put it, Le Guin societies are like natural outgrowths of their physical surroundings. A video game like Skyrim takes many minds and people to put together. It's more on the scale of a movie than a book, really. And creating a huge virtual world that feels at once real, transporting, and at least at first, limitless, is not a simple thing to pull off. From the layout of the map... Where in the world is this town going to go? And then how can we shape the world around this town... To the terrain... To reinforce the town's purpose, ecology... What kind of climate is this area relative to the town and the folks and the culture, the people that are here? To the emotional vibes. Like how can we use the natural environments to give the players different senses of space? And for that, they use trees. Um, And we would use foliage for those purposes as often as we could. On his website, Noah writes... Something seemingly simple as the silhouette for frequently occurring tree types can have a significant effect on the player's perception of the world. When I think of leafy, sun-dappled environments like that, that invokes a very kind of uh, pastoral and safer, home-like, summer-like, kind of calmer, warmer, bountiful feel. In the same essay, Noah continues... What if these same broadleaf trees were instead tall evergreens, having a more open, jagged, vertical profile? This same location might instead lead the player's eye upward towards distant landmarks visible towards the horizon, subconsciously ushering them forward. So it was interesting to play with contrasts to give the player an increasing sense of distance and scale. But the thing about creating a world is that The real world is infinitely detailed. I think of those videos that start on a picnic blanket, zoom out by 10 feet, then 100 feet, then 1,000, until before long you're looking down from the edge of the atmosphere, then the edge of the solar system, the galaxy, and on and on and on, and the scale of the universe unfolds for you. And then in the reverse direction, from the palm of a hand, into a cell, an atom, an electron, the more you look, the more you see. But... For the artists of Skyrim. We, we, I used to jokingly say, and lovingly so, to fellow landscape artists that we're trying to, to trick the player into looking at the art for just <laughs> enough time to get a sense that is real and then to distract them with something else so that they don't look too closely and see the verts and the triangles <laughs> and, the, and the texture <laughs> seams and, <laughs> you know, the, the nuts and bolts of the constraints of game development. And you know, Skyrim is detailed. Just consider the fact that it has weather and time passes. You see the same landscapes in fog, rain, sun, sunset, dawn, midnight, noon. There are ants on logs. But it doesn't get everything right. For instance, the horses. Horses are prey animals. They have eyes on the side of their head, and so a real horse looks at you from the side. But in Skyrim, they look at you dead on, like a person or a wolf. There are places where shadows don't feel quite right, like in a room with firelight. The game being a game, it's it's still not to make an excuse, but it was you know it's still truncated from what we what we would ideally do in reality. 
which we would we would still be working on it right now if that were the case. And then there's High Rathgar, the throat of the world, the monastery we talked about earlier, and one of the most critical locations in the whole game. It's part of a legendary pilgrimage. They call it the path to the monastery to 7,000 steps. And in the lore, it takes 7,000 steps to get to the summit. The stairs can be treacherous. I remember having a meeting about this, of like how many steps are we able to include to support the written lore that has it as these numbers, specific number of steps. Like we felt like that was something that they would notice and would give this tactile sense to your journey. And the player did notice it. The journey to the throat of the world takes not 7,000 steps, but 700 some odd. And yes, people have clocked it. I remember we were both disappointed. I'm, I'm picturing the, the other artist involved in that case, and we were both disappointed that we couldn't do it. Because the thing is, if you're trying to create a whole world, whatever you do... You can never have enough detail. You can, there's, I think it's fair to say it's always possible to add more detail. So, It'll never be enough. The moment you begin an undertaking, the moment a project starts, um, the, the clock is ticking and your energy and, and time and patience, you know, on, on large scales, you know, life, uh, life chapter scales, you know, multi-year undertakings. For Noah, the imagined worlds he created started to mean something different, and they became less and less of an escape. It's, um, it takes all the time you can ever possibly throw at it, and it's still starving for more. That's coming up after the break. So you left the industry a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, why? Oh, man. Um... I'm struggling for any way to encapsulate it simply at the outset. Uh, I was really burnt out. I dove into gaming and my specifically my job and my career uh, as an escape in and of itself. Like I certainly enjoy games and wonderful, wonderfully engrossing environments as well as an escape. I always have. And I personally think that that's what helps make any any art that's well-received or liked or generally thought of as good, however collectively. I think that's that's how it, it is good, is when the person doing it is loves it too. I think I get the sense I, I've also experienced burnout. And, um, yeah, sure. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's hard to, um, you know find yourself in a place where you don't feel love for something that you once felt love for. Yeah. And to feel that love kind of wither over time, like you being aware enough of the danger of that happening and then also witnessing it slowly happening. It's, it becomes this feedback loop that, you know, um, it's like seeing this large wave, this tsunami in this, in the distance that you think like, okay, when you first notice it, maybe I can avoid it. <laughs> and then and then it gets closer and closer over time. And you realize, oh, I'm going to get wet. Oh, I'm going to get really wet. Oh, man, my raft is going to get disintegrated. <laughs> there are a few reasons Noah felt this way, and I'll get to them. But I want to return to something Noah said earlier about the possibilities of open-world gameplay 
that more kind of relaxed gameplay, explorative, uh, contemplative, almost meditative. I've said already that this is the main reason I liked Skyrim. I like to explore, to linger in the Valley of the Golden Birches. I mean, Skyrim is a beautiful game, and it's pretty astounding to me that it's still pretty to this day. And in fact, video games journalist Ana Diaz did the same thing. She called this basically using the game as a walking simulator. Oftentimes I use games as like a form of therapy, I guess. And so that way of playing just made more sense to me, um, or it just felt better. What do you mean by you use games as a form of therapy? Um, so this goes back to another game that has a lot of overlap with Skyrim called Zelda Breath of the Wild. It is also very focused on building out a beautiful natural world. And my senior year of college, I got very sick and couldn't leave my bedroom for days on end. And I was very lucky that I had a switch in that game. And like, I, there's this study that even looking at a picture of a tree can make you feel better. I think that exploring these very thoughtfully crafted natural environments sort of, it's just very relaxing to splash in the water and hear the sounds of, you know, like birds or crickets or the leaves rustling. And it doesn't like replace being outside, but like I said, it's still very therapeutic. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I had the same sort of experience of gameplay with Skyrim where I was like, yeah, like I don't actually really want to kill these dragons, um, nor do I like want to battle. I just want to sort of walk around and be in the place. Um, but one thing I wonder, like, did the game kind of allow you to sort of peacefully walk around? No, I mean, it doesn't. Even I hopped in again last night and I started freaking out because... <laughs> these wolves started attacking me and then so then I tried to run past them but they kind of designed the game so that even if you get past one enemy without what we call aggroing them or being aggressive towards them there will be another and another and so that felt inescapable to me and that I actually ended up dying um I was like <laughs> okay great like I need to practice this the longer you play the more the game's basic patterns can become clear including some pretty familiar ones. I mean, I guess even in Skyrim, there's like, you think about the wildlife and the main way you interact with the wildlife is killing it. <laughs> yeah, you're pillaging the, the, the landscape, the you know, the countryside, I should say. And I, I do it too. You go in a game and everything that's not nailed down, like, oh, it goes in the inventory. I mean, it's fun. It, not to condemn it, but... Again, I liked playing Skyrim. I would play Skyrim now if I had a video game console. And there are certainly parts of the game that are not focused on violence. Like you could become an alchemist and get to know the herbs and ingredient plants in the game. But that still means harvesting and buying and selling. So even when the skill is relatively benign, the relationship between the virtual natural world and the player is one of extraction. Competitiveness against the world for resources or cert and certainly competitiveness against another player or person, you know? And then there's the main storyline itself, saving the world from the dragons. Often when you defeat a dragon, you get to learn a word of power, a shout. 
Some shouts confer new abilities, like whirlwind. It lets you run really fast. Others are weapons, like fire breath, which is what it sounds like. And then there are shouts that change the environment around you. Clear skies, which dispels clouds and storms. And there are shouts that you use against the dragons themselves, including ones that force dragons to land in the middle of an encounter so that you can more easily shoot them. There are shouts that let you ride them, and that even deploy dragons to fight on your side, even against another dragon. So in one interpretation, you could break this down to say, the main storyline involves killing the dragons, adopting their language and learning it, in some cases, to use it against them, to control them, and at a certain point, to compel them to destroy each other. I mean, like, it doesn't take much to look at a lot of the major open world games and to see that they still can embody this, like, very masculine charge of manifest destiny, right? But, like, then we're not even thinking about video games. Like, we're thinking about the, like, the history and culture embedded into the United States, right? I mean, it's like... Just to give you a little perspective, like, I'm a woman of color, and I don't always feel comfortable being, like, violent and aggressive in games. And I, I you know, I was just tired of, of blood and gore and people laughing at it. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is kind of effed up. <laughs> like, why are we enjoying this stuff? When I think about what Anna said about the charge of Manifest Destiny, this idea about how white settlement of the West was framed as both righteous and inevitable, and how it became a big shaper of how white society treats the landscape, and how that shows up and gets repeated in the stories we tell ourselves, in the United States at least. I start to wonder what other types of relationships to landscape could we depict in our stories? Like, I think it's a fun thought experiment to imagine what Skyrim could look like. What if there was a choice in the game to have a relationship with landscape besides fighting or harvesting? I'm not necessarily a game designer, but like I can, you know, point to other games I feel like have led me to cultivate more mutual relationships with nature. Um, and one is a game called Mutazione. It's an indie game. Um, it was published last year. Yep, 2019 fall. What you do is you compose music by planting gardens. So each plant is its own instrument and you sort of arrange them and can kind of compose these soundscapes by tending these gardens. And then what you see as you play the game is that by taking care of the gardens and thus the island, we also heal the relationships not only between the inhabitants and the island, but the relationships between the inhabitants themselves. And so there is no way to level up the player. And so we're not encouraged to take those resources. We're not selling anything. Uh, we're not using it to like improve. We're just using it to heal, essentially. Mutazione subverts a couple different norms in the gaming industry. For one, Anna says it's closer to that walking simulator idea in its gameplay. Even within critical circles, a lot of people would sort of look down on the walking simulator genre 
I mean, that's a much larger conversation, like, and can run really deep into the culture of a vocal minority in gaming. Like, walking simulators are not seen as like as good as, you know, insert big budget blockbuster first person shooter here. Anna says that there's a real culture of gatekeeping in the gaming industry, one that labels games that are packed with action and violence and agency as real games and anything else as fake or not legitimate. Plus, games media tends to be like very commercially focused um, and sometimes relatively narrow with its concerns um, and is on can sometimes embrace this idea that's like better graphics or more realistic graphics are better. Um, And I think this was especially the case at the time that Skyrim came out. And since Skyrim, the industry has continued to evolve. Graphics can come closer and closer to crossing the threshold of that uncanny valley, the gap between life and its simulation. Even just a couple months ago, a new game engine was announced for next year, which is a software that game designers use to build games. It's called Unreal 5. There are over a billion triangles of source geometry in each frame, that nanite crunch and it is unreal in how real it looks. What does that many triangles look like? This isn't noise. These are the triangles, each a different color. Most are so small that they look like noise. Nanite achieves detail down to the pixel, which means just trying to get a sense of like what the industry is like. Like, um, is there kind of a, a pressure to sort of like outdo each other on different games like to make uh, oh, yeah. games more photorealistic like a sort of arms race to be more and more detailed or or some other quality uh, of an arms race absolutely and you've you've nailed it right off the bat um, there's pressure omnidirectionally uh, studio to studio title to title um, possibly like division of a company to another division of the company it absolutely wore me down every time, and I was not aware of that reality going into it. And I was naive to a lot of it, too. But yeah, it's it's constant. And you get quite literally years into it, and you're going, what is happening? Yeah, I can remember at the at peak moments of just of stress or frustration or something like that, I would go and take a walk, and I'd be like looking at light sunlight on pavement and something like that and i i would find myself like trying to figure out the specular level of how that information would be stored in a texture and what what rgb color value it would be and i would catch myself and i would you know in a lagged delayed fashion i would feel my heart rate increase stressfully because i'm thinking about this work problem stuff specifically at a time when I'm trying physically not to so I can heal and decompress and have some homeostasis and I was and I it wasn't quite an epiphany but it was this realization of like oh my gosh things have to change like I have to change my life somehow I can't I can't do this anymore this is crazy (laughs) for lack of a better word it's flipping crazy (laughs) Noah readily admits his participation in his own burnout. Significantly, he didn't take a real vacation in 14 years. He'd take time off, but he didn't really get away to really unplug and break out of his routine. But in 2014, a few years after releasing Skyrim, he finally did take a little time. 
he went to the American Southwest. What was it about the desert? Oh, it's so open and so quiet. Space, space and peace. And um, it's so quiet that you can, you can hear yourself think. You, know, you, can, you can hear your own thought process. Like your thoughts are able to be consistent and steady and they're not reacting to something in the environment like another person or another email or your phone ringing or a text popping up or a, a meeting that you have going on or the meeting about the meeting you just had or like the team meeting that's 15 days away so it's just it's natural bodily rhythms um, getting back in touch with that and realizing like oh this is actually how I'm supposed to be all the time <laughs> Not not this like once a year, two week window break into. I'm supposed to be this way all the time. It's the other stuff that's that's off track and imbalanced. And I remember um, once this like beautiful trip was was all over, and I was on the plane flying back to D.C. I remember like getting back to my apartment, and I just like broke down in tears because I I just did not want to go back. Like I I couldn't compress myself down into that that's headspace anymore I remember this point I got to towards the end of my playing of Skyrim there's no real way to beat the game but I completed most of the major quests I'd obtained beautiful, super magical armor and weapons of legend. I was a master archer, a thief, an assassin. I'd fulfilled the legend, and my character was godlike. You know, like, people will market video games as a place where you can do anything, or you can do things that you can't do in real life. Um, but then you lose something uh, when you get all the power in the world. The game is supposed to be fun, an escape. But if nothing in that world can touch you, not a dragon, not a wolf, not a mountain. You do lose something. Personally, just straight up, I got bored. There is a community of players that create modifications, or mods, that you can add to Skyrim. And some specifically introduce limitations like cold, hunger, the need to sleep. With these, if you set your sights on the summit and see a storm, it's not just atmospheric anymore. It changes the idea, if you can see the mountain, you can go to it. Yeah, you can go to the mountain, but not everything is in your control. So yeah, after all that glory, I wanted to return to more earthly constraints. As a matter of fact, Noah did too. What did it feel like to say, I'm, I'm done? Oh, it was a huge relief. It was a huge, huge relief. I, and a lot of fear as well. If you don't mind me asking, though, like, what, um, just practically, what, like, are you, are, are you working? Like, are you, what are you doing to make a living right now? I'm relying upon savings, mm. to be honest. And I'm, I've done small odds and ends there. I did some dog walking. Um, I'm helping out a friend with, like, babysitting, things of that nature, you know, yeah. kind of low-key stuff. I get outside as much as possible. I take long walks. I, I walk, try to walk like several miles a day, trying to, trying to suss out some way to move forward and, and, and flourish. You know, I don't want to say just survive because it's about moving past 
primal survival and flourishing. Because I don't think life is supposed to be that way. I think that I personally believe that it's our own kind of frame of mind and 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 what we experience is, you know, we interact with that at the very least. I think we personally feel like we're we're more responsible for it than we realize. And I'm trying to for for lack of a less cliche way to say it, I'm trying to wake up to that. I notice how hard it is for me to think and to just conceive of ways that you could relate to landscape in a game so that you're neither a mere observer nor trying to become a god. Imagining a game that finds a way to let you become part of the world again. What a fantasy, right? This episode of Outside In was first released in July of 2020 and was produced and reported by Justine Paradise with help from Taylor Quimby, Felix Poon, Erica Janik, and Sam Evans-Brown. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of NHPR. NHPR.